When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they, mar and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of the old men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted the ways, their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to, to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and, and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from, from now, 
I will send rain on the, on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Um, let's uh, bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we do thank you for Jesus and that indeed uh, he is the one who rocks the world, that uh, he is the firm foundation for our, our salvation, for our hope. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word now that we would have a clearer understanding of uh, your, uh, what you have revealed to us about um, your character and about your will and your purpose for us and where Jesus fits into that. So we pray the same for the children in Sunday school as well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so one of the big things we've learnt in Genesis, in uh, chapter 2 and 3, is that God created man in God's image. I wonder if you've ever noticed, however, that uh, a lot of people try to create God in man's image. Ever notice that? Uh, you ask people, you know, what do you think God is like? And people say, well, I like to think of God as being, or uh, the God I believe in, well, you know, he's like, and the God I believe in wouldn't do. And then they finish the sentence with the things which they value, the things which they think are right and important. So the God I believe in, well, he's very tolerant. He accepts all religions. Or the, the God I believe in, well, he, he doesn't punish people, except truly evil people. Um, and the God I believe in, well, he's actually just a bigger version of me because what I think is what God thinks. So he's just a bigger version of me. And so... We, we create God in our image. Have you ever come across that? Um, you see it all the time. And people uh, do this because they, they, they tend not to like the idea that God is actually a holy God, uh, a holy God who judges people. People don't like that idea. And so they don't seriously believe in the God who gets angry because of sin. Now, sometimes you might hear people say that, you know, certain people do deserve to go to hell, you know, like terrorists and mass murderers and certain politicians and that sort of thing. And, uh, but they, they delude themselves into, into, into thinking that they themselves are fine, that they themselves, they're, they're okay, everything's sweet with God as far as they're concerned. I see this sometimes, you know, as a minister... Occasionally, I have to do funerals for people, and someone dies, and family invites me around to the house, you know, a few days beforehand, and we <clears throat> talk about things and prepare the service and so on. And you know, it's interesting to listen to what people say about the person, and I understand, you know, they're grieving at the time and so on. But you know, he was a good bloke. You know, he loved his wife, he loved his kids, he worked hard, he lived a good life, he enjoyed his bowling. Did he think much about God? 
oh, no, 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 he wasn't religious or anything like that, but, you know, I'm sure he's up there, he's probably up there having a beer with God now, you know. And, you see, people you know, live their lives, <clears throat> we, uh, we have our relationships, we have families, we work hard, we build our resources, our assets, and we play our sport, and we, and we, we live our lives but we don't actually think too much about God and about how God views us, about the day of judgment, what comes after death. And in Luke chapter 17, Jesus said that that's exactly the way it was in the days of Noah. He said in the days of Noah, people were eating and they were drinking, they were getting married, they were having their families, they were getting on with life and so on, and they were ignoring what Noah taught, because Noah was a preacher. Uh, he was a, he's described as being a preacher of righteousness. They ignored what Noah was saying about the day of judgment, which was just around the corner. And Jesus said, that's what it was like. Now, Noah's Ark, uh, it's got all the ingredients for a great Sunday school story, doesn't it? You know, kids love stories of animals and boats and tubby, bearded men with robes and, and so on. But friends, this is actually no kid's story. Uh, the account of Noah is a very serious uh, story. And we're going to dive into it now. And what we see, if you turn to Genesis chapter 6, in Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses, it, it, the, the account of Noah begins with some rather curious comments. I'm going to read this for you and I'll talk a little bit about it and we'll move into the story of Noah itself. Everyone have a look at that, chapter 6, verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of whom they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, his days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. They are curious verses, aren't they? I mean, what does it mean? Who are these sons of God? Um, who are the Nephilim? What do we know about them? Are, are they the same as each other? Are the sons of men the Nephilim or the Nephilim? Are they the offspring of the sons of men and the uh, the sons of God rather, and the daughters of men? And you probably know about as much as this as I do, <laughs> um, because there's. We're not actually told, um, is, is the bottom line. The, um, there, there's a number of different uh, thoughts that people have. Uh, some say that these sons of God might actually be fallen angels and uh, that they've come and they've married the, the daughters of, of men. Um, others think, well, perhaps these sons of, uh, of God, uh, they're, they're the same of, as the Nephilim and don't quite know what the word Nephilim means. In the older versions, it 
translates it as giants, but we're not sure what it means. So the NIV is probably correct. It's just given the exact Hebrew word, Nephilim. <laughs> Uh, you know, are they? Some folks say that they're the same. The Nephilim are the same of, as the sons of men, and maybe the, the the sons of God rather. And maybe the sons of God are the sons of of Seth, uh, the descendants of Seth. Seth was one of Adam and Eve's sons. Remember, there was Cain and Abel, and Cain murdered Abel, and Seth was the son who was born in uh, in place of Abel. And uh, we're told in chapter 4, verse 26, that it, at the time of Seth, that, that men started to, uh, to call on the name of the Lord, uh, on, on the name of Yahweh. And so maybe it's the case that these sons of God, uh, these Nephilim, are the descendants of Seth. Uh, but we don't know. We, we can't be sure. What we do know in situations like this is that we do know that the original readers would have known what that meant. Um, but we don't know what it means exactly. And when we don't know what someone, something means, there's two approaches that we can take. Uh, one is to look at what the other parts of the scriptures might say about the particular uh, part of the Bible that's being referred to and we'll look at that later and look at how the rest of the scriptures interprets uh, Noah and the flood and we've already seen that in the passage I read from Jesus but the other thing is that if it's unclear what it means then we probably don't really need to know much more than what's in the text uh, what we do need to know is what it tells us about the state of humanity and that's what we see in chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, uh, where the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That is a damning statement, isn't it? it let's read it again. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I suppose that, you know, people think that if God is just a bigger version of us, then God doesn't mind a little bit of sin. I mean, after all, boys will be boys. You know, you can. God might just brush sin under the carpet. But they don't understand two things. They don't understand the holiness of God and they don't understand the heart of God. And here, in this passage, we see both. Now, of course, there are other people who uh, do think of God as being a judge, but they've got a very wrong view of what it means for God to be a judge. There are people who picture God as being uh, like a, you know, a, a callous you know, parking policeman who's just waiting to swoop on any infringement. But here we see that sin hurts God, that God was grieved in his heart. Uh, that he'd created man. And so we see something of the character of God, that God is not soft and fluffy, 
but neither is he hard and callous. He is a God who cares deeply for righteousness. And it's for that reason that in chapter 7, God made a decision, which, you know, when you look at it in the context of Genesis, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, that everything that God made, that he saw it, he said that it was good. And you get to this passage and God's made this decision to actually uh, to, to wipe out mankind in, in a flood. But not all of mankind, not Noah. Noah was a descendant of Seth. Now, that's important. And uh, let me just press the pause button for a couple of minutes and say a few things about the, um, the descendants of Seth. In fact, um, chapter 5, the genealogy, is actually uh, an account of the descendants of Seth. Um, uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that it follows, that what follows is the account of Adam's line. But it's not really a family tree. You know what a family tree looks like, don't you? You know, you've got the couple at the top who have, they have three or four kids and then each of those kids has three, gets married and has three or four kids and, and so on. It, it just spreads out till, so you've got this incredibly wide base um, at, at the bottom of it. Um, but this is not a family tree in Chapter 5. Uh, it doesn't spread out to tell us of all of Adam's descendants. Uh, instead, in verse 5, what it does is it, it follows the line of one of his sons only, and that is Seth. And when you look at this um, this family line, what is the one thing which which absolutely stuns us as we read this genealogy? Let's have a bit of a browse through it. What's the thing that kind of you know jumps off the page and sort of slaps you around the face a few times? How long they lived. People described as living 700, 800, 900, almost to a thousand years. Now, what do you make of that? It seems strange, doesn't it? And there's been a lot of ink spilt over this one as people have tried to work out what does this actually mean. And there's a number of views that that are put forward. Um, one view, for example, uh, is that uh, each time that it uh, introduces one person, then the first time that the, the name is used, then it's actually referring to the person. But then uh, at the end, the next time that the name is used, that it's referring to the family that that person had established. So it's not the person who's lived for 800 years, it's the family that the person established that you know, went for 800 years. That's one view. Uh, I think it's got problems with it. Uh, another view is that, um, well, maybe you know, a year is not 365 days. Maybe, say, you know, eight of their years equals one of our years. That's a view that's been put forward. And I think it's got problems with it as well. Uh, especially if you do the calculations on that. If a guy you know, has his first child when he's 60, that would make him a very young man. <laughs> so, and there's, you know, these views 
they, they don't actually work. Um, some people say, well, we actually need to uh, wait until we've got a better understanding of how ancient genealogies were, uh, were, you know, were used and what their purpose was and so on. Well, perhaps is another idea, radical idea. Perhaps these anti-diluvian people, that's a big word, isn't it? Perhaps these, it means pre-flood people, perhaps these pre-flood people aged more slowly than we do. Um, and the thing which we need to consider in all of this is that in the Bible, genealogies serve a purpose. They're not just put there in order to provide tongue twisters for Australians a few thousand years later, uh, you know, trying to read their Bible. Genealogies serve a purpose. And it's useful for us to consider what is the purpose here. Let's have a look at that. Um, I'll make two points. First of all, in chapter 5, there is a common pattern. Uh, and it goes like this. When a certain man lived so many years, he then gave birth to a son. And then he lived some more years, and he had a few more kids, and then he... What happens to him? He died. He died. And so Adam died, then Seth died, then Enoch died, then Kenan died, and so on. They all died, except in verse 24. In verse 24, there's a fellow called Enoch, and Enoch was a man who said to, you know, that he walked with God, and God took him. We don't know what happened to Enoch, but the, the, the big thing that really should be we, we gloss over it we don't because death is just so normal we don't really pick it up but the good big thing which is, should be screaming out to us from these genealogies from this genealogy is that people died death death had entered remember the promise that you know God said to Adam and Eve that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die and so death, sin and death, has entered into the world and, and death has become the norm. See, we, we get so hung up on the long ages that we miss the big issue, which is death. <clears throat> because of God's mercy, in chapter 6, verse 3, God actually set a limit to lifespan. 120 years. Now, you see that? Now, I think that I say mercy. Mercy is not in the text, but I say mercy because it's actually merciful that uh, God does not allow us to live longer than that because we're fallen. We're sinful. And when sin is in your heart, over the years it just grows and grows and grows. And so it's actually great mercy that people don't live uh, great long lives. Not only a mercy for them, but a mercy for others as well. Um, the oldest man in the world today is Mr. Kimura uh, of Japan. And he was born in 1897. And so at age 116, uh, when last I checked, at age 116... He is the oldest living human being 
today. He is also the only man who, who is alive who was born in the 19th century. How about that, eh? How about being a person who has actually lived in three centuries, the 19th, 20th and 21st century? Mr Kimura is the only man who's lived in three centuries. Uh, there are apparently 16 women alive, as far as we know, who have lived in three centuries. Uh, but of all people, men and women, Mr Kimura at age 116, is the oldest human being alive today. He's getting close to the limit, isn't he? I don't think he'll make it past 120. <laughs> Mr Kimura of Japan. Now, secondly, back in the Garden of Eden, the gospel was preached. Who was the first person who had the gospel preached to them? Any thoughts? Anyone want to have a guess? Reckon it was Adam? Eve? Who else was in the garden? The serpent, Satan. The gospel was first preached. The first person who ever heard the gospel was Satan in chapter 3, verse 15. Because remember when God uh, talked about the punishment on the serpent, he said that the... The offspring, the, that your offspring will, will strike the heel of the woman's offspring, but the woman's offspring would crush his head. And uh, that is, it's a declaration of the defeat of Satan. And so the big question that, um, you know, that we, we need to look at here is, well, who is this descendant of Eve? who would crush the head of Satan. And that's what the, the, the family line is doing. The family line is looking for the crusher. And so it goes down through the family line of, of, of Seth. You know, This person was born, he had these kids, and he died. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And then you get to Noah. And Noah is looking promising, doesn't, isn't he? Because in chapter 6, verse 9... Uh, Noah is described as being a righteous man who was blameless among the people of his time and he walked with God. Is he the crusher? Is he the one who will stand up to Satan? Is he the one who will resist the temptation to sin? Well, God told Noah to build a box, a very big box, a floating box. Uh, we usually don't call it a box, do we? We call it a an ark. What does the word ark mean? It's a Latin word, and it's Latin. In, in Latin, the word ark means box or container. Uh, what what do we call the thing which the that the, the old the tablets of the old te, of the Ten Commandments were were kept in? We call it a Ark of the Covenant. It's not a big boat, is it? It's a box. It's a container. So ark, ark means box. Remember that. But for the sake of simplicity, uh, I'll call it an ark as we go through the rest of the passage. All right. Uh, but it's a big floating box. Um, now, some of the children's 
stories about Noah's Ark are so child-friendly that they can end up making it look a little bit like a fantasy, uh, you know, uh, like, with, like Cinderella or, or Goldilocks. Um, on the other hand, there, there are some people who, have li- who actually live their lives trying to search for the remains of the, of the ark, you know, searching around, around Mount Ararat to, to try to find it. And as anthropologists who tell us that other cultures uh, have, have memories of, of a giant flood that took place. But for sheer realism, uh, there's no fantasy in this at all, for sheer realism, you don't have to go past the text itself because uh, here in the text we see the plan for the, for the ark. Uh, Noah did not dream up this plan. Noah was no... Um, ship designer. He was no boat engineer. Uh, And in chapter 6, verses 15 through to 16, God gave Noah specific instructions on how to build it. This was to be a huge boat. Um, People who've done the calculations uh, say that the ark was about one one and a half million cubic feet. Um, The area of the three decks was was over 100,000 square feet. Um, this is huge. This is absolutely huge. Uh, and, and it shows that this, this very evident realism in the text. It's a big floating boat or a box. And all of this would have made Noah look very, very foolish because there was no water in which to float his boat. And Noah became a laughing stock as he built it every day. But he built the boat, <clears throat> collected the animals, and then in chapter 7, verse 16, we come to what I think is, it's a very striking verse, chapter 7, verse 16. It's a verse that you could easy, very easily just gloss over, but have a look at chapter 7, verse 16, and the, and the last sentence in that verse, which says, then... The Lord shut him in. Now, when you think about that, that is a really, really hard verse. God had asked Noah to be a preacher of righteousness. God had asked Noah to believe that a flood was coming. God had asked Noah to go and build a big boat. But God did not ask Noah to shut the door. How could Noah have done that? How could he have shut the door knowing that people all around him would soon be drowning, sinking to their deaths, their lungs filled with water as they screamed out for help? And so we're told that God shut the door. It's a grim verse that has terrible consequences in this really what is a dreadful story. In the children's storybooks, in the modern children's storybooks, you will not find sketches of thousands and thousands of people drowning. In the old storybooks, you do, apparently. Yeah, and so one of the fellows uh, in the nine o'clock service, I didn't say what I'm about to tell you now, 
I just said that you won't find him in any storybooks. He came up to me afterwards and he said, yeah. He's, 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 in, he's 76, I think. And he said, when I was a child, I remember my mother taking me through the storybook on Noah's Ark and I can still see it in my mind, these pictures of, of, uh, uh, of multitudes of people um, drowning crying out and trying to grab on to get onto the boat as they sunk uh, into the water. So it was like a, a scene from like an asylum seeker boat, you know, that's capsized, which happened apparently the other day. It's a dreadful, this is a terrible situation. This is a story of, of judgment, of God's judgment on sinful humanity. And the great message... Uh, the, the great message, you know, if we're to interpret the story of Noah and the ark, we've got to go to how the New Testament interprets it. And the great message is that in these chapters, God promised judgment. And what God promises, God delivers. We are to take God at his word. And the Bible also tells us that one day in our future, that Jesus will return. And on that day, he will bring an end to this life as we know it. People will be judged. Some people will go to heaven. Many people will go to hell. And whether we die before the Lord returns or not, whether we're still alive at the time, it makes no difference. The effect is the same. And this is one of the great promises of the New Testament, but it's not particularly popular, is it? I mean, try talking to non-Christians about the Day of Judgment. Try talking to your non-Christian friends and, and saying that one day God will judge the world. It's hard enough to even talk to people about the fact that we believe that Jesus will return. It's hard enough to even get people to think about what happens to them after their own death. Uh, you know, we, we're reluctant to talk about it because we know that uh, uh, often that will be met with um, scepticism, ridicule of us. People mock the idea. People say that Jesus is not coming back and so people make plans for their lives, map out their lives, um, map out the timetable for their lives, everything that they're hoping to achieve and do, uh, think very carefully about their retirements and so on, but they do so without much thought about God or the day of their death or, more importantly, what happens after death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now, the Bible has a message for people who doubt, and I've printed it for you on your, um, your bulletins there. Listen to what uh, the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 to the people of his time. He said, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on and on and on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's Genesis chapter 1. 
And by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, that's uh, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So they forget that in the beginning God created and then there was the flood of Noah and by that same word the judgment will come in our future. See, Noah's Ark is not just a cute story for children who love animals. It's a warning to our world that God means business when it comes to judgment. But it also keeps us searching for the crusher. I wonder, have you ever, you've probably never asked this question. You've probably never wondered it. But I'll put it to you. Have you ever wondered why there is more than three chapters in the Bible? I mean, Genesis 1, 2 and 3 is pretty good, isn't it? In terms of understanding, it paints a picture for us of God, paints a picture for us of the world, paints a picture for us of us, of humanity and our relationships with each other, our relationship with the world, our relationship with God. Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3, it's pretty good. Why do we need the whole of the rest of the Bible? Kind of sums up humanity pretty well, don't you think? Well, the reason we need the rest of the Bible is because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Um, the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Who will he be? In chapter 9, we discover that it's actually not Noah because after the flood, Noah goes and gets himself drunk. Uh, he lies naked and then he curses one of his sons. It's not Noah. Noah is not the crusher. He caved in to temptation. He caved in to sin. But friends, the account of Noah pushes us forward to look for the one who did indeed crush the serpent's head. And uh, that one, of course, is Jesus. The account of Noah helps us to put our trust in that one who did crush the serpent's head. Because the flood was not only about judgment, it was also about salvation. Uh, Noah didn't laugh off what God said. He trusted God at his word. He took refuge in a boat whilst the rest of the world ridiculed him. We take refuge not in a boat but in a cross. More specifically, we take refuge in a man who hung and died on a cross. Ridiculed by many but a saviour to others. Friends, we need to believe in God as he truly is. God in God's image. And it's important that we communicate to people that we do believe that there is a day of judgment. Not because we want people to be judged, but because we want people to be saved. Without judgment, the message of the cross is devoid of meaning. It is empty. We want to warn people 
so that they will get in the boat with us, so that they'll hop on the boat, so that they too will put their trust in Jesus, who on the cross bore our judgment upon himself and in so doing took away from Satan the power that he had over us, which was the guilt of our sin, and in so doing he has crushed the serpent's head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revealed will for us in the scriptures. We thank you that you are a God who is holy and righteous, a God who it is against your character to tolerate sin. But we thank you, Father God, that in your great mercy that you have borne our sin upon yourself in the person of your Son who has crushed the serpent's head. Father, we pray for ourselves that uh, we would be people who are, who are on the boat, who are trusting in your word, trusting in Jesus. And we pray for many others, particularly those we love, uh, that they too would, jo- would, uh, would hop onto the boat and would believe in Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Father, we grieve for the sin in our world. We grieve for the sin in our own lives. We thank you that you are a saving God, and we pray that that salvation would be experienced by many others. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.